0: Snuff Production. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you are living under a Labor government in your state, territory and federal parliament, unless you're in Tassie, because you are in the only state that has a Liberal government in the whole country. So this sea of red around Australia is pretty unusual. The last time Labor governed the whole country was in 2007 when Kevin Rudd came to power In the federal parliament. So how has this happened this time around? Well, the story is a bit about the Labor Party, a bit about the Liberal Party, and a lot about us, the way we're changing. And one of the key things we'll learn in this episode of The Briefing is just how much influence Gen Z and millennials are now having on politics. Finally,
1: I don't think it was wise for them, for example, to walk into the parliament with a lump of coal in their hands and and (laughs) basically mop that entire generation that by 2025 in some states will make up half the voters role.
0: So that is our briefing, why we have almost wall to wall Labor governments in Australia right now. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers, it is Thursday the 30th of
2: March. New figures show the news that most of us have been waiting for. Inflation is falling for the second month in a row. So inflation dropped to 6.8% in the 12 months to February. That's down from 74 in January and a peak of 84 in the 12 months to December. So overall, it's come down 1.6% over the last quarter. And this increases the chance of the RBA finally pausing their 11-month rate hiking cycle.
1: We know that people are doing it tough, but inflation is heading in the right direction, off its peak.
0: Yeah, but a long way from its target, which is 2 to 3%. So this is good news for everyone, really, because it's a reduction in the cost of living and also provides hope for people worrying about their mortgages continually going up. Um, it comes at the same time as the ACTU, the peak union body, are calling for a 7% increase in the minimum wage. Now, this will be controversial because, yes, on one hand, the lowest paid people are hurting the most from the rising cost of living, but if wages go up across the board, it could prolong inflation as more money in the economy pushes up prices even further. And a new parliamentary inquiry will examine the impact ADHD is having on Australians and what supports available for people with the condition. It's happening after the Senate backed a Greens proposal into the inquiry. Around one in 20 Aussies are estimated to have ADHD.
2: Yeah, so this is a bit of a tricky one because Bill Shorten, of course, uh, he, he's been called upon for ages to expand the definition of who's eligible under the NDIS. He says, look, the NDIS already covers thousands of people who have ADHD. So to be eligible right now, you need to have a co-occurring condition such as autism. So that's how people with ADHD have found their way in, but you can't get cover if you just present with ADHD.
0: Yeah, and it's a hugely expensive program, the NDIS, so they have to draw the line somewhere on who gets support and who doesn't. So this inquiry might really throw ADHD into the spotlight and start a big debate about whether it should be included on its own Mm. or not. And by the way, we did an episode on um, women with ADHD and the rising level of diagnosis. And that was on February 15. If you want to go and check that out, it was really interesting.
2: You know, out of all the episodes we've done, that is the one that people talk to me the most about. Mm -hmm. So that one really hit home with a lot of people. It's a fantastic episode if you haven't checked it out. Australian Olympian Peter Bowle is calling for his drug investigation to be dropped after two independent labs have now cleared him of ever using the banned substance EPO. We always knew our innocence and it just kind of indicates everything. We kind of said all along. So let's take you back in time. Boll was provisionally banned after an A sample tested positive to EPO last October. But then his B sample tested negative. So his legal team has commissioned some independent testing. And and they say it was so independent that they didn't even know it was Peter Boll who, you know, they were looking at. And they found no presence of any synthetic EPO.
1: This wasn't even a close call. Um, These were just negative tests.
2: That was his lawyer, Paul Green. So those independent tests have found only natural EPO. This is something I didn't know before looking into this story. But apparently if you've got a big spike in naturally occurring EPO, which some... People do. Um, apparently, Peter Boll is one of them. You cannot have taken synthetic EPO. So the two can't show up on your tests at the same time. So that's what they're arguing.
0: Yeah, so that's why they want the current investigation to be dropped. He is already allowed to compete again, but there is still an ongoing investigation into what happened. I mean, the, the, the big question is also why the results of the A sample were made public, which caused so much damage to him. Before the B sample um, results were released, that just made the whole thing a total mess. And Prince Harry has once again called out the Royal Institution, this time in court. So it's part of evidence he's using in his case against the Daily Mail's parent company for alleged phone hacking. And in his witness statement, Harry accused the royal family of covering up alleged phone hacking, saying the institution was without a doubt withholding information from me for a long time. This came in the second day of a preliminary hearing in London's High Court, where he and other celebrities like Elton John are suing the newspaper over invasions of privacy.
2: Pretty wild. I wonder where this is going to end up, because, you know, these are some huge names and it's not an ordinary thing for a royal to even take the stand. Uh, I was looking at it, it's been more than 20 years. Princess Anne was in court once for her dogs biting some kids, but that's kind of it since then. Mm. So yeah, I'm so interested to see where this will all end up. Yeah, I'm less
0: interested in the case, I'm more interested in what conversations he has with his family while he's there, because this would be, as we've touched on, a great opportunity to sort out what's happening for the coronation, but no reports so far that he's... Catching up with um, Will or Charles on the side?
2: No. And Elon Musk, Bill Gates and the Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. So some huge names have joined calls for the training of AI systems to be suspended for six months. Mm. They've all signed an open letter saying they're really worried about the race to develop AI chatbots like ChatGPT is out of control. Uh, their letter said the pause should apply to AI systems more powerful than GPT4. So heaven knows what's going on in labs behind closed doors, because mm. that one's pretty big. Uh, they want independent experts to use the proposed pause to develop and implement a set of shared protocols for AI tools that are safe beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, Elon Musk used to, he, he was the one who kind of co-founded Open AI. He uses AI in Teslas. That's how they drive themselves. Um, then he left the board a few years ago, so probably a few sour grapes there, but I mean there are other names on this. I think they're worried about things like we just don't know how capable some of these apps are until after the fact, like with GPT four, they didn't know until they released it that you could ask it to answer questions in a knowledgeable way um, or from the viewpoint of an expert and it gives you a completely different answer.
0: Look, I mean, these are these are some of the biggest innovators of our time, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak. So my simple mind doesn't truly understand the risks posed by this technology, but these are people that have championed innovation for decades. For So for them to be sounding the alarm is cause for alarm for me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it is worrying, isn't it? And all that stuff about it replacing humans' jobs. I mean, I know that there are a lot of things that – exist now, that occupations that we never thought would have existed even 10, Mm. 20 years ago. But just the rate of it, the speed of it is, as you say, alarming.
0: All right. Catch you tomorrow, Katrina. It's time for our briefing. All right. Now to our briefing on wall-to-wall Labor governments everywhere except Tassie. So we're speaking to a leading political researcher and strategist, Cosmos Samaras. Now, this guy gives really solid analysis on how attitudes and demographics are changing in the Australian electorate. He worked as a senior campaigner for the Labor Party in Victoria for 14 years, and that is a state where Labor have been dominant for almost 10 years, and he now runs his own political research and strategy consultancy called the Redbridge Group. Cosmos, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. When you look at the political history books, how common is it that Australia has one party in power across federal and all or most of the state governments?
1: I think you live in living memory we've 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 seen this once before, and it was at the time around Kevin Rudd was prime minister. Uh, however, back then, baby boomers and older Australians made up of about sixty percent of the voters' roll, and you know if we then go back to 10, ten years before that, at the turn of the century, they were still very dominant even more so. So what I'm suggesting there is that they have a tendency of swinging from one party to the next, depending on the the actual circumstances and and the state of politics in the country. What is going on right now is, in my opinion, a far more permanent uh, pattern. doesn't necessarily mean it will stay red. I expect, for example, the LNP to possibly win the state election in Queensland next year. However, it is driven by, in my opinion, three major uh, currents. The, the the emergence of millennials in Gen Z as a voter constituency, okay. the massive growth of migration in the last 20 years, and also the massive growth of what I will define as Labor's, and to a lesser extent, Green's working class base. Health workers, service personnel, people working in those type of industries that do require tourist qualification, but uh, um, don't pay all that great.
0: So you're talking about the ways that we're changing as, as mm. voters, you're talking about changing age profile, a generational change, migrants, a growing number of people in these, these industries that are leaning towards labor. But I guess part of it is also about the parties themselves. I think we can probably break this conversation into three big mm. dynamics, us, labor, mm. and liberal. Mm. Mm. So the liberals, you know, just had a terrible result. In New South Wales, in WA they're in a, a terrible state. Victoria, they're also just not even in the picture in terms of a, any kind of threat to the Labor Party. And there are, I guess, various stories of the Liberal parties in the various states and the way that they've failed. What are the common themes in those Liberal stories
1: mm-hmm. that demonstrate how they've been missing the mark? I could be really, really crass and just say they're really terrible at politics, but let's get a bit more detail. They um, have completely misread the country they live in. And what I mean by that is if you look at the things they have ignored or willfully mocked, climate change. Well, it's one of the the most predominant issues of concern listed by millennials and Generation Z. Now, anyone who is involved in politics, particularly party politics, Uh, is acutely aware of new enrollees every year. If you're an MP, you know how many new enrollees you're recording in your electorate every year. And a lot of MPs, many who are conservative, write to these constituents, particularly when they turn 18 or they're enrolled to vote for the first time. So they're obviously paying no attention to how many of these young people have been jumping on the roll over the last 10, 15 years. They've obviously ignored... Countless public polls around the sentiment expressed by this constituency that is millennials and Gen Z, particularly on climate change. You know, I, I don't think it was wise for them, for example, to walk into the parliament with a lump of coal in their hands and, and <laughs> basically mop that entire generation that, is, that by 2025, in some states, will we'll make up half the voters' roll. Mm. So they've missed that. They then embark on this war with China which you know to a certain extent okay i understand it's got some foreign policy implications and so on but in the process alienate 1.3 million chinese australians mm. who overwhelmingly live in our two biggest cities particularly sydney so we chalk that up and then we go to the other very big migrant constituency australian indians and again you know i think most people may have forgotten this but The Indian community was poorly treated uh, during the pandemic when they had that Delta outbreak and basically Morrison just locked the borders and wouldn't allow Australian Indians to either come back from India or get their relatives out that were there visiting or on holiday.
0: You're essentially saying that they're stuck in the past. They're not evolving their policies to suit um, the new generation, which are making up a much bigger part of our electorate. But is that always going to be a challenge for a party that holds conservatism as one of its core values because the whole idea is yep. preserving what we have in a society, preserving the good
1: things, which means inherently looking to the past. Yeah. It requires a complex answer, I think, because I think the Liberal Party evolved in itself. As um, you know, If we look back at when Menzies set it up, you could argue it was actually, to a certain extent, quite centralist, mm. um, very libertarian on the economic front, um, many people on the Labor side would say very conservative on the economic front. But when it comes to social policy, it was pretty open. You know, we, we sometimes forget that when the boats started arriving from Vietnam, it was Fraser that it accepted them with open arms. Mm. So you yeah. can see the contrast there.
0: So looking back, you mentioned at the start of this interview that 2007 was the last time we had water wall red or water wall Labor in Australia. And that's because there were already... Uh, Labor state governments around the country, but then Kevin Rudd beat John Howard and was in power in Canberra. So what can we learn from that cosmos, looking back at the way those dynamics played out, what are going to be the, the good parts and what could be the bad parts of
1: this? So I think in terms of the good parts, yes, on climate, but I, w- I would say that the New South Wales coalition government was actually quite good on climate mm. with Matt Keane, um running the agenda there. You'll see a lot more coordination, but the coordination is probably needed in addressing the housing crisis in this country, particularly for people who are renting. You know, so in a city like Sydney, the largest dwelling type now are renters and growing. Well, it's know, just a shortage
0: because, and that's what drives up the price, and that's what creates the attainment problem.
1: Yeah, yeah it's that, and it's all the other sort of economic. Sparks that are occurring right now with regards to, you know, those who own properties have been to incur more costs mm. and, and as a result, uh, bumping the, the rental prices up as well. Sydney has put on on its voters' role close to 170 odd thousand voters who are renting in, I think, in about six, six seven years, right? We may see overall national and a much more coordinated approach to dealing with. Uh, housing, because I think, yes, if we were to use the New South Wales government's approach, they were probably a little bit slow the, as the former government in this space. The negative, um, yeah, hubris. Mm. But I think that will um, that hubris will end pretty quickly next year when they when Queensland goes to the polls.
0: Right. Okay. Hubris. I mean, unpack that a little bit, because mm. I imagine when you have more power, you can potentially overstep the mark and piss off a lot of people.
1: I say that with a bit of caution too, because to be fair to a lot of these governments, right even if we look at the federal government that you know some of the most senior people in that government are very acutely aware of what's going on from an electorate perspective as in the stresses that are out there. You might get you know amongst certain corners of these governments, yeah, that level of hubris where people think that, Yes, these issues that we've been talking about, the generational change, the Mm. the disconnect between the Conservatives and and two very significant diverse communities, and people make make an assumption that that is going to be the thing of the future. Well, we don't know. You know, I mean, um, if the economic situation worsens to a point where, you know, uh, I think I was reading this morning that uh, Westpac has had to basically… Repossess. yeah. Yeah, repossess 200 homes. Mm. And it's the worst they've seen since the GFC. That's the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. Well, this is the thing. I
0: think this will be the biggest threat for Labor. If these economic conditions worsen, if we can't get inflation under control, if that is just squeezing so many families, pushing up interest rates, leading to more repossessions and, and forced sales of homes and some like deep pain, deep economic pain for many people, and you look around and see, oh, well, who's in power? It's wall-to-wall Labor except for Tasmania. Yeah. Oh, what's what's the biggest chink in Labor's armor according to you know the opposing side of politics is being bad economic managers, and that could be the way this story unfolds if it goes in the wrong direction for Labor.
1: Yeah, I, I would um, put an extra lay on that as well in terms of where the real sting will be. It will be actually a state government level more than ever before. So historically, state labour governments have been fairly conservative when it comes to to planning and, and the construction of housing in established suburbs. And I mean, and I say established suburbs because these young professionals in particular that we've been talking about want to live mm. in the suburb that their community belongs to and they don't want to be pushed out to the other suburbs. So the solution, which is infill, is an incredibly difficult one to achieve because, one, you've got land supply issues, you've got the private sector that, that's, that's experiencing all sorts of supply issues and cost accumulation, and above all else, to, to fix this problem, they have to upset a lot of asset owners. Mm-hmm.
0: One other quick question. Hmm. For someone listening to this, go, well, Cosmo Samaras has mostly worked for the Labor Party as well as huh. you know, his own company. Is he very much biased towards labor? I mean, how do you sort of, I guess, yep. meter out your allegiances as you make this analysis
1: yeah uh, i and i can probably just talk briefly about my previous occupation which was to run uh, election campaigns Mm. for labor and you can really only do that if you're objective the last thing you want to do in those positions is basically run a subjective response to political challenges so Mm. that's a skill set that i developed over 14 years but our operation is bipartisan as well so we do have a liberal side to what we do in terms of our research Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we try to keep our eyes open as much as we can, you know, and I you know, I think in this interview acknowledged some of the, mm. I'd say, positive attributes of the New South Wales Liberal, liberal government, mm. which by the way was, they need not to walk away from that because that is still a model that works. It was the most, I would say, centralist modern version of Liberal offering that I've seen in quite some time.
0: That was political researcher and strategist Cosmos Samaras. So interesting to hear him talk about the rise of the millennial voter. Obviously, I'm part of that demographic at the older end of the millennial generation. And the issues that matter to millennials is stuff I've been reporting on throughout my whole career, the last 15 years, talking about like the nightmare of getting into the housing market, the environment, social issues like gay marriage, and a lot of the time, it did feel like We were shouting into the void and politicians didn't care about those issues because they didn't see votes in them. And that seems to have caught up with the Liberal Party because millennials are now all grown up, making up a much bigger and more powerful part of the electorate, clearly too big to ignore. Listener.